Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Crime, especially that of a violent nature, is most often committed by men. In the Victorian times, this fact was still true. So when a woman was convicted of murder, this caused a huge furore and begged the question why she chose to kill. And was it all to do with money or something darker? This time on Macabre London, we uncover the story of the Bermondsey Horror. London today is a bustling metropolis, an exciting place to visit, and a somewhat safe place to call home. An eclectic mix of people from all over the world live in London, and the crime rate is dropping year on year. In some parts of this vibrant capital, the crime rate is lower than that of much smaller cities in other parts of the UK. However, things haven't always been so safe. Stories and tales of old have echoed around the streets and grown to become that of legend, particularly those of a gruesome nature. Today we'll be exploring one of these stories and discovering about London's often bloody past. My name is Nikki Drees and this is Macabre London. London in the mid-1800s was a vastly expanding city, with the Irish famine seeing many people choosing to emigrate to the city in the hopes of a better life, the general population was increasing at fast and unsustainable rate. The boost in the city's population was not just from Ireland, people from all over the UK flocked to the city, as well as people from France, Germany and also Poland. The cheapest, least desirable and most dangerous areas of the city were filling up fast as people sought spaces to thrive in the underbelly of the metropolis. 
For those who had little to start with, this meant that competition for all basic requirements became stretched, and with jobs and accommodation becoming more expensive and less available, people were forced to live beyond their means and to pay for it either through hard work or to turn to crime in hopes of a better life. For some people, a route to gain a taste of the high society living they were seeking was to gain employment in a space which afforded that luxury. For women, it was a good way to secure a job where their basic needs of food, board and a little bit of pocket money would be met. By being a servant in a rich household, women would have the opportunity to mix in higher society than in their day-to-day -day life, and this meant that they would be exposed to wealthier suitors and have the possibility of marrying into money, which would provide a more comfortable form of marital imprisonment than the usual methods. The other opportunities for employment for women in London at that time were limited. If you left home without marrying first, then you would need to make your own way in the world. Most women got married, were kept by their husbands, had a family, and when they inevitably outlived their spouse, would inherit their beloved's insurance money. For those women who didn't take the standard route of marriage, babies and inheritance, there were only a few choices of career. Become a domestic servant, end up in a workhouse, or sell your body on the street none of which were particularly desirable options to be forced into. Marie de Roux was born in Switzerland and moved to England in search of the high life. Marie procured herself a job as the maid to Lady Polk, wife of Lawrence Polk, who was a member of parliament in Devon in the southwest of England. Marie then moved to London where she obtained a job as a maid to Lady Blantyre, the wife of Lord Blantyre, who was a Scottish politician residing in Stafford House now named Lancaster House, in the St James's Park area of London in 1846. Marie met Frederick Manning in 1846, and by 1847 the two were married. Frederick was a publican and not a well-off man. Pair that with a heavy addiction to the alcohol he peddled and a penchant for violence, Marie had landed herself a real catch. Frederick enticed Marie into marriage by boasting about his inheritance he was soon to bequeath from his ill mother. He told Marie that his mother was at death's door, but after their marriage, Fred's mother made a miraculous full recovery, and the pair were set to be living off slim pickings for a while into the future. So with a newly acquired home in Bermondsey, and money beginning to run dry, Marie had to come up with a plan so as to not be forced onto the street. As an enterprising lady, and in her time before she married Fred, Marie had been courting an older gentleman by the name of Patrick O'Connor. Patrick was a well-established gentleman. He was a moneylender who had set up his own business and as a result was fairly well off. When Marie married Fred, she broke up with Patrick, but the two stayed in contact and Patrick always held affection for her. After Marie had visited Patrick one evening, the pair seemingly formed a financial agreement between them as they would be seen going to each other's homes in the evenings and one of them leaving after around an hour or so which suggests that Marie was providing mistress services in return for money. None of this was ever confirmed by Marie herself, but was highly suggested by those who knew her. Fred was seemingly okay with this arrangement, as the pair would convene at the marital home with no objection from him, and Patrick was often seen out in local pubs with the couple. But this jolly threesome could only last for so long. Fred's drinking problem was getting worse, and Marie was feeling the brunt of it. Neighbours said they heard sounds of fighting, and crying could often be heard regularly. With tensions high, and Marie restricted by limited options for getting out prosperously from her broken marriage, she and Fred recognised that the end was near for their relationship, and began plotting a way that the two could split and be financially independent. 
Knowing Patrick had plenty of cash tied up in bonds, the only option was to steal them. But there was one small problem with this. Patrick wouldn't just hand them over. Marie went to Patrick's flat one evening and was let in by the shopkeeper who allowed her access into the abode through the back of the shop. The shopkeeper, who was also the landlord, was not keen on Marie. She said she often would find her to be rude and coming and going at all hours of the day. Patrick would allow Marie over to his apartment alone so she could be waiting for him when he would return from work, often having prepared a meal for him so the two could dine together. On this evening, Patrick had already made his way home and Marie appeared later on that night. The two spent a few hours alone together in the flat, seemingly negotiating a deal which wouldn't come to fruition, or perhaps Patrick declined her offer as Marie left and went home, storming out through the shop, looking upset. The following night, Marie sent a letter to Patrick asking him to come by her house in Miniver Place, to which he did, but instead of coming alone, he brought a friend along with him. Marie was visibly annoyed at Patrick and said she'd been waiting for him and that the meal she had made him had gone cold. Marie spoke to Patrick about settling some bills for which he said he would pay, and the two talked about their financial affairs. Frederick, who was also at home, tried to share some brandy with Patrick, but he said he felt ill after smoking a pipe and retired to their couch until he felt well enough to go home, taking his friend with him. The next day, Marie, once again, sent a letter to request Mr O'Connor's company at dinner, but this time stipulated that he must come alone. It's speculated that Marie had told Patrick that she would elope with him that evening, but Frederick had other plans. Patrick finished his job for the day in the city on Thursday and told his colleagues that he was headed for dinner in Bermondsey at the Manning's abode. He was seen crossing London Bridge by a colleague, William Keating, and the two exchanged pleasantries and went on their way. Patrick made his way to the little mid-terrace home and went in through the front door for what would be the last time. When entering the house, Fred invited Patrick into the kitchen for a drink, but what quite happened next, no one really knows. The next day, Patrick didn't arrive for work, which wasn't a huge deal in a time when calling in sick wasn't as easy. He would have had to send a note to advise of his absence, and as he was the boss of his own company, his colleagues assumed he was taking an impromptu day off. Patrick's friend, William, wasn't able to find Patrick at work on Friday, so he went to the last location he knew he'd been to, Marie's place. He knocked on Marie's door and she opened it. William asked if Patrick was there and was told that she hadn't seen him. Marie said she'd invited Patrick for dinner on Thursday, but he didn't turn up. William said that was strange as he'd seen them on the bridge that evening and he said he was heading for dinner with them. Marie said that she was quite annoyed at Patrick for not arriving and Fred told William that it was quite ungentlemanly of Patrick to negate his commitment. William Keating left the Mannings, but another friend and colleague of Patrick's, William Flynn, picked up where he'd left off. Flynn arrived at the Mannings also to inquire where his friend was and he was told the same story of Patrick having not come to dinner on Thursday. Flynn left the Mannings and alerted the police, suspecting that there may be more to the Mannings' story. Two policemen, Henry Barnes and James Burton, arrived at the Mannings later that day, knocking on the front door but receiving no reply. They managed to gain entry to the house from a landlord who had the key. When entering the house and finding it empty, Barnes and Burton decided to have a look around to see if there may be any clues to the Mannings and indeed Mr O'Connor's whereabouts. Barnes and Burton entered the kitchen when they noticed two flagstones on the floor which appeared to be damp around the edges. The police were aware that Patrick was missing, but they had no lead apart from him heading to the Mannings for supper, 
so at this point they were looking for evidence as to where he may have been, and not necessarily a body. Fearing the worst, the pair poked in between the flagstones and noticed that the earth was soft beneath them, which would suggest they'd been freshly laid, somewhat ironically, at the depth of a foot. A human toe was found. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux. XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Sticking up out of the fresh earth. As the pair began to dig wildly further into the damp, cold soil, they began to uncover the bound torso of a man. His legs were bound behind him with strong cord, and he'd been unceremoniously dumped face first into the makeshift grave. Just as Burton and Barnes discovered the body, Samuel Lockwood, the surgeon, happened to walk into Miniver Place. Samuel had heard that there may be something interesting happening at the address and decided to pay a visit, even though he'd not been instructed to by anyone. Samuel helped the pair uncover the rest of the body, and when Barnes uncovered the head, Samuel inspected it, reaching inside the mouth and removing a pair of false teeth. The teeth were set to one side, and the rest of the body removed from the makeshift grave and set out in the adjoining room where they would sit for inspection by the authorities over the next two days. In trying to establish exactly what had happened, the police interviewed anyone that had any dealings with Patrick in his day-to-day life, and all were questioned about Patrick's involvement with the Mannings. In a first for dental recognition used to successfully prove the identity of a body, Patrick's dentist checked the teeth and confirmed that he had indeed sold these to Patrick, meaning the corpse's identity was now confirmed. Patrick's body was given its post-mortem in the kitchen of the Mannings by Samuel. Patrick's head was inspected, and even to the untrained eye, it was obvious the skull had suffered blunt force trauma. Samuel felt around the damaged area of the skull, looking for fragments of a weapon or any other evidence. As he pinched around the forehead, he felt a lump protruding from the skull and out through the skin. Cutting into the forehead, he uncovered the tip of a bullet which had lodged into Patrick's head. Whomever shot Patrick was clearly frustrated as the gunshot didn't kill him outright. It would have caused him to have a protracted death, and in perhaps a bizarre last step of humanity, in trying to dispatch him quicker, the murderer bludgeoned his twitching body to death, causing the blunt force trauma. 
with not much else to go on, and the location of the body being fairly obvious as to who had carried out the murder, police were now on the hunt for the missing Mannings. The policeman visited Patrick's flat and spoke to the shopkeeper as they figured the girl working there on the night of the murder may have some insight into Marie's toing and froing. The girl said Marie had been into Patrick's flat twice, once on Thursday evening and once on Friday morning when she changed a large note with her, looking somewhat nervous. But as the shopkeeper had told her to pay no mind to Marie's often strange behaviour, the shop girl didn't think to mention it to anyone. The police went into Patrick's flat and noticed that it seemed as if all his belongings were there, apart from two locked boxes which were open. When checking them over, both boxes were empty, apart from some letters and documents, but neither contained any cash. The interviewing of neighbours of the Mannings concluded some vital verbal evidence in the form of a 12-year-old girl who sold matches in the street. The girl said she'd been approached by Marie and asked if she could clean. The girl said she'd be more than happy to help. When entering the house, Marie asked the girl to fold many scraps of linen that were drying above the fire, many scraps of linen that had been used for cleaning that morning. She said there wasn't much else to do in the way of cleaning, as the kitchen was spotless and Marie was scrubbing the floor in there. The girl said she saw Fred coming and going from the house that morning with a man who was removing some furniture, and that Fred was handed cash for it from which she was paid. The girl was told to help tidy the rest of the house before she was asked to leave, saying that Marie was very kind to her all the while she was there. With the house tidy and people starting to inquire about Patrick, the Mannings must have thought it was too risky to stick around for much longer, in case the police came knocking. The pair left together from the home, but so as to not bring too much attention upon themselves, and now each financially independent thanks to Patrick and his wealth, the two split. Frederick was arrested in Jersey, and Marie was captured in Edinburgh after trying to transfer property which bared the name Patrick O'Connor. In court, the jury heard the evidence presented by Henry Barnes and James Burton, the two policemen which discovered Patrick's body at the Mannings, and Samuel the surgeon. The two Williams gave testimonies, along with the cleaner girl, the landlady of Patrick's flat, and anyone else who happened to have a sliver of detail about the case. The jury found both Fred and Marie guilty, and both were sentenced to death. Marie spat angry taunts at the jury after her sentence was delivered, calling them English imbeciles. Both Marie and Fred were to be executed together, which was unusual, as usually both would be executed separately from each other. However, as the case had been in the press, and the pair were now well known by the general public, a decision was made to carry out a public double execution. The execution of the Mannings was carried out by William Colcraft, an executioner whose methods were often said to be more crowd-pleasing than humane for his victims. Colcraft used the short-drop method of hanging, which didn't break the neck like the long-drop method of hangmen in later years, but instead would strangle and garrote the victim, subjecting them to an extended and painful death. In a time when public executions were a day out for all the family, this meant the spectacle of a person's execution became a sadistic performance to Calcraft. He became the showman of death, showing off to his audience. He would climb on the condemned person's shoulders after he pushed them off the drop and when they were suffocating from the noose, in an effort to add extra weight to break their neck. Or alternatively, he would rally a few people together to pull down on their legs, resulting in the rope being pulled tightly into the flesh of the person, causing more unnecessary injury. At a time when entertainment was scarce, the increased and extended suffering of a prisoner was seen as an enjoyable thing to witness. 
However, public execution was dropping in popularity and not all people agreed that the spectacle of death should be witnessed by others, particularly that of a female. Charles Dickens attended the execution and said that it was an incredibly sorry thing to witness. Marie and Fred were executed outside of Horsemonger Lane Jail and people in their thousands came to watch them. Marie wore a black satin dress and it's believed that her choice of material on her death day led to a rapid decline in the sale of the fabric throughout the rest of the Victorian era. Perhaps the connotations of the material having been worn by a convicted criminal was what put people off the fabric, or maybe it was that the sight of it conjured up visions of Marie kicking on the gallows. However you look at the case of the Mannings, it's hard to dismiss the unfairness in the trial against the pair. Even though it's not definitive how the murder was carried out, it's most likely that Fred shot and beat Patrick to death, as the injuries would require a large amount of force, and Marie carried out the burglary of Patrick's worldly possessions. But was it right to convict both parties the same? In a world where women had no career progression, and were put upon pedestals that simultaneously lifted them into being precious and respected, it also stunted them into being reliant on their husbands for finance, and thus were trapped by a thinly veiled, well-meaning idea which allowed control over half the population. Perhaps if Marie had been able to separate from Fred and the two were able to be financially independent without Fred's wage and Patrick's companion payments to Marie, then they wouldn't have needed to murder Patrick and the two could have been happy alone. If Marie just coerced Fred to murder for money, then why didn't she just ditch Fred and marry Patrick or leave Fred and rob Patrick? No one knows for sure, but perhaps the idea was to exact revenge on both. After all, Marie had suffered at the hands of an abusive husband in Fred, and the arrangement between her and Patrick was not something she wanted to do, but was a means to an end of being backed into a corner of limited options. If Marie had instead told the police about Fred murdering Patrick, and she had taken some, but not all of his money, she could have been comfortably well off for a while, and probably gone undetected. However, an inbuilt fear of Fred, the threat of being found out and playing chicken with the hangman's noose, led her to think otherwise. Marie's story read as a warning to those in the Victorian period who may have thought murder for profit may be lucrative, and even though Marie paid with her life for her crime, and of course her acts were immoral and incorrect, I can't help but think that if she'd just been able to get a normal job without having to live off the money of the males around her, none of it would have ever happened. Thank you for joining me for another episode of McCall. How do you feel about this case? Do you think Marie and Frederick received the right punishment for their crime? Or do you think that they should have been allowed something less permanent than the death sentence? I'd love to hear your thoughts in the comment box below on YouTube. Make sure you join me on my social media so we can chat about it there too. If you haven't already, then please make sure that you check out my recent videos on YouTube, where I've been carrying out a few Halloween experiments with some slightly mixed results. And even though Halloween is now over, Hopefully they'll still be mildly entertaining for you. As usual, please give this episode a nice big thumbs up, subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and remember to leave us a review on iTunes. It helps new people to find the show and to grow our macabre family. Thank you to all of you that have left five-star reviews already. It's very kind of you and I really appreciate it. If you'd like to continue to support me and the show together, then please think about supporting me on Patreon. Support tiers start from as little as just $1, that's 80 pence, and go up in increments from there. 
We're now reaching download numbers with the podcast, where if everyone donated just $1 per episode, then I could perhaps go part-time at my day job, which would really help me in bringing you more content on a regular basis. However, if you can't donate, then don't worry. Please just spread the word about the show, as that's also very helpful. If you do manage to donate, then you also get macabre London-shaped rewards such as t-shirts, pin badges and access to exclusive content. So it's worth chipping in so I can do more of this for you on a regular basis. The link for Patreon will be in the show notes below, so do check it out. Thank you for joining me for another macabre tale from London's past. I've been Nikki Drews, and I'll see you next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.